title of our, our message this morning, and I apologize, I didn't get the slides in this morning, so I'm going to try to pause uh, and, and make sure that I give enough time for everybody to write everything down. You know, if, if you haven't seen Angela's Facebook post, uh, there, was, there was a zinger that was, was kind of sent across the bow. You know, apparently we got to slow down a little bit on, on some of these things, so um, she was giving us a hard time about some of our, our long, uh, big ideas and uh, the pace at which we do that sometimes. That was, that was fun to... So many piled in. I, I, I just didn't think there would be that many that would have the same opinion, so... Uh, du- duly noted, we'll, we'll take, take uh, note of that, but uh, Hebrews chapter number one, we're going to focus in on verses five through the end of the chapter uh, this morning, and I'm going to do my best uh, by God's grace to, to cover those verses. We, uh, we have a, a special baptism service on, on February 5th, and uh, we, we thought we'd take a strategic moment to just let that baptism service just be an opportunity for us to linger uh, in the ordinance of baptism. It's, uh, we, we haven't had that opportunity often, and so we're going to have uh, some preaching and teaching centering, centering around the ordinance of baptism, and so I, I hope that'll be encourage, encouragement and blessing to you in, in a couple weeks. Uh, so we've got a work cut out uh, for us this morning, uh, so we'll jump right into it again. The title of the message is The Superiority of the Son. The superiority of the Son. Last week we, we finished verses 1 through 4. That's what we could call the, the prologue of this sermon uh, that, that is being delivered. This, this letter um, that, that is being essentially preached. And so we, we've finished verses 1 through 4. And really we, we examined the identity of the Son of God. And we finished with Hebrews Uh, Chapter 1, verse number 4, with this phrase, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Is more excellent than theirs. So the superiority of the Son. The author here is is building on verse number 4. And uh, the author of of Hebrews will now launch out into this extended uh, preaching and, and teaching that will attempt to provide a contrast between the angels and this Son of God. He does this primarily by leveraging seven Old Testament quotations that will fully and completely establish the Son of God as mentioned and described uh, throughout this, this first chapter here in this book of Hebrews. The conclusion is going to be none other than Jesus truly is better, He is greater, and He is far superior than the angels. I, I took a moment last week uh, to provide some encouragement as we approach a passage uh, such as Hebrews chapter number 1. It's not necessarily a passage that as we preach expositorily through the Word of God that there are some just really practical Christian living takeaways. They're, they're, they're not necessarily there, but what we are confronted with and what we have before us is the Son of God. We have Jesus. We have the Gospel. And so the author of Hebrews in this first chapter is really laying a very important foundation for us to consider. 
Because we must get the identity of Jesus right. We must understand the identity of Jesus correctly because getting the identity of an individual correct, it does determine how I relate to that individual. And so if, by God's grace, I can truly gaze into the pages of the inspired Word of God and I can see Christ for who He truly is and I can say and agree with Scripture that yes, this is Jesus, the Son of God, then that reality should absolutely have some very tangible and relevant and timely Christian living takeaways from my life. Because if and when I see Jesus for who He is in Scripture, it will always change me. Because when I gaze into the face of Jesus, there's an element of exposure that comes on my side. I see Jesus in all His glory and and majesty. I see Him in His holiness. I see His sacrificial love. I see Him being moved with compassion. I see Him being passionate about truth, denying the hypocrisy of the religious elite of His day. This is Jesus. I see Jesus standing in a gap, making a way for sinful mankind. The rightful heir, taking on the burden of that great high priest that only He could do. Jesus, the God-man, eternally God, Co-equal with God. This is the Jesus that we have before us. And so I pray that we would not grow weary of gazing into the gospel. I pray that we would not grow tired of lingering at the foot of the cross and seeing a Savior that poured Himself out for our behalf. And oh, what a a timely message for us as we have the opportunity in just a few moments to come together in fellowship around the table, to partake of the Lord's Supper, to remember Him. Would you join me in prayer as we ask God to work in our hearts this morning? Father, we come to You once again, and I just want to lift this time up to You. I I need You, Father. I have no words of my own. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take your word and that you would plant it deep in our hearts. I claim the promise that when your word goes out, it it never returns void. It always will accomplish the thing that you sent it to do. So Father, I pray that you'd be faithful to your word. Your word would be quick and powerful. I pray that it would be a hammer that breaks up the hard heart. Father, I pray that you work at this time. Change us to be more like this Son, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So maybe asking once again, what's the big deal with this passage, verses 5-14? through 14? It's a pretty simple takeaway. Jesus is superior to the angels. And you could be saying, I got it. Let's, let's move on, right? But again, I, I think there's, there's more for us. As we linger intently and carefully to consider the implications of recognizing, responding, and re- relating re- rightly to the Jesus 
the true Son of God. Because if Jesus is better, if Jesus is greater, if He is superior to the angels, and if Jesus is who Scripture reveals Him to be, then this truly does change everything. So for the unbeliever this morning, the intent of the passage is what? To reveal Jesus as the true Son of God, the hope of the world. And so our prayer this morning would be that you would receive His free gift of salvation by grace through faith. For the believer here this morning, the superiority of the the Son of God should expose the tendency that we often have to to live as practical atheists. Certainly affirming the theological truths that Jesus is the Son of God in a doctrinal statement, but living our lives devoid of these truths on a day-to-day basis. Living as if there is no God. Pursuing our own way. Doing our own thing. Consumed with our own desires. The author desires to wake us up to the reality of who Jesus is. I love how he does this. And this is one of the big reasons that we were excited about diving into Hebrews. How does the author of Hebrews intend to wake us up to the reality of who Jesus is? He does so by leveraging the powerful testimony of the Old Testament to draw out some very important truths for us to consider. These truths concerning the superiority of the Son of God will serve again as the basis for a warning that is to come at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1-4. through So we say all of that to raise our sense of awareness, our sense of urgency and intentionality for us to glean what the Lord would have for us in this foundational content as we establish who Jesus is. So the big idea of our text this morning is this, because Jesus, the Son of God, is far superior to the angels He alone is able to save, and He alone is worthy of our worship and our fellowship. Because Jesus, the Son of God, is far superior to the angels, He alone is able to save, and He alone is worthy of our worship and our fellowship. First observation we're going to look at this morning is that the Son of God is superior first because of His relationship. The Son of God is superior first because of His relationship. The author structures these Old Testament quotations in three sets of of twos. And so our first two quotations will be supporting this assertion that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, is superior. Why? Because of His relationship. Well, His Relationship with whom? Jesus is better, greater, and superior because of His relationship with the Father. And the Son of God, His relationship with the Father, we're going to see that it differs greatly in contrast to the relationship of that of the angels. So the author kicks off his teaching in verse number 5. Let's look at verse number 5. 
For to which of the angels did God ever say? For to which of the angels did God ever say? This same question is repeated down in verse number 13. Thus we have somewhat of a bookend between verses 5 and verse number 13. The author expects his readers. It's interesting. This question is rhetorical, and he expects a negative answer. For to which of the angels did God ever say the answer to his readers would be a resounding, there there were, there were no angels that God ever said the things that he's about to say. What is the first Old Testament quotation? O'Reilly actually alluded to, and actually didn't allude to, read this verse from Psalm chapter number 2 as we're working our way through the Psalms in our Sunday morning worship service. Psalm 2 verse number 7 says this, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse number 5 of Hebrews 1, you are my son, today I have begotten you. There could be potentially a better and more helpful translation as we look at this phrase both in the Hebrew and the Greek. And it could be read and translated this way, you are my son, today I have become your father. Now this idea of Jesus being begotten is somewhat of a challenge. There's been many false teachings and heretical doctrine that have been spun off as a result of this idea of Jesus being begotten. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Some would draw on the biological use of this word to weaken the eternality of Jesus, saying that Jesus was a created being. Have you heard this before? As we seek to always interpret Scripture with Scripture, we can lean on the broader testimony of both the Old and New Testaments to know and establish the deity and eternality of Jesus. The Son of God always has been and always will be an equal person within the triune Godhead. The conclusion of this relationship between the Son and the Father is this, that Jesus is God. Nothing less than God. So Jesus is unique and superior. Why? Because God is His Father. That's that's a beautiful reality and truth for us to just sink our teeth into this morning. Jesus and God the Father are one in a familial type of relationship along with the Holy Spirit experiencing perfect unity within that triune Godhead. That is a unique and special relationship that only Jesus shares within the Trinity. The angels certainly can look on, appreciate and value, but they certainly can never experience that type of intimacy and fellowship and relationship with God the Father. Again, I'm not going to spend too much more time on that. We 
parked on that point somewhat last week, but it is somewhat of a connection that I want to make between the first four verses and verses 5 through 14. The author's expanded teaching here about this contrast between the angels and the Son of God, really all of the content here in verses 5 through 14 are really looking back up to the truths and the nuances that were drawn out concerning the identity of Jesus Christ in verses 1 through 4. So you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So if the angels have not been addressed by the Father in this way, who has? It is, it is Jesus. The author goes on to, again, further establish the relational contrast between angels and the Son of God by looking back to 2 Samuel. This is our second Old Testament quotation that we see. At the end of verse number 5, the author says, or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. These words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse number 14, they're written really to the king of David by the prophet Nathan. And we know based on the broader context of 2 Samuel that this prophecy was looking forward to David's son Solomon, who God chose to do what? To build the house of God, to build this temple. This prophecy would would also look beyond Solomon to an eternal king and an eternal kingdom. If we look on in 2 Samuel chapter number 7, we see in verse number 16, he goes on to prophesy, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Do you feel the nuances and the connection of those first four verses as we remember that Jesus was what? Heir of all things. After making purification of sins, what did the rightful king do? He he took his place at the right hand of God the Father. Your throne shall be established forever. Certainly this prophecy to David concerning his son Solomon was but just a foreshadow of the true Davidic king. The long-awaited-for Messiah that would come and establish His throne forever. Jesus, not the angels, could only fulfill this prophecy. Why? Because it is Jesus that is set apart as unique, that is set apart as superior. Why? Because of His relationship with the Father. It is Jesus that descended from Judah, from the tribe of David, and it is Jesus that rules and reigns over the temple of God as our great high priest. I can't wait to dive into that high priest imagery as we continue to work our way through the book of Hebrews. The author is establishing once again these foundational truths now and they will continue to unfold in great detail in the chapters to come. But first, the Son of God is superior. Why? Because of His relationship with the Father. Our second observation this morning is this. The Son of God is superior because of His position. 
Because of his position. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, I makes, excuse me, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, this introductory statement to the official quotation there that comes from the Old Testament. Let's consider what that phrase is. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says. Well, this phrase here in verse number six, it's somewhat ambiguous. The timing or chronological position within the life and ministry of Jesus is not clear. It's clearly referring to the begotten Son, the Son of God, Jesus. But what aspect of Jesus' life is, is really called into account here? Is this a reference to His incarnation? Jesus took on flesh as Emmanuel, God with us. Introducing God the Son to the world? Is, is this what it could be? Is it referring to His ascension? When Jesus paid for sins, made that purification of sins, and then ascended up to the Father? It could be potentially His ascension, or is it His exaltation? After His resurrection, after He's ascended up to the Father, Referring to his second coming, coming back, the, the parousia. Ultimately, this, this time in the life of Christ where he will come back as, as a conquering king that has with it more of an eschatological sense to this phrase when he brings the firstborn into the world. Most theologians, as you dive into all the nuances and ambiguity of this, most theologians point to the unique word that is used for world. Here, oftentimes in the New Testament, the word for world, say that times five times fast, uh, it's, it's a simple word. word. You, would, you would know it. It's cosmos, right? You're familiar with, with that word. Here in verse number six, we, we have a different u- word that is used for world, and it is oikumene. Or- um, This word is also used in chapter 2, verse number 5, which refers to, if we look at that verse, the world to come. So as we, again, attempt to interpret Scripture with Scripture, and we see these two words tied together, and in chapter 2, the world to come, we we definitely see a a futuristic idea here, and not looking back to the incarnation or the ascension, exaltation of Jesus Christ. There definitely is a view here of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. With an end times view in mind, there automatically comes with that a sense of urgency. Our life is what? But a vapor. 
This idea of redeeming the time, making most of what God has given us, being stewards of of the interactions and the days that God has given us. Why? Because it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. This life is short. And so when we consider the personal work of Jesus, the identity of Jesus Christ, I wonder, are you, friends, living as a Christ follower with that type of sense of urgency? That Christ is coming again. That is a promise. It is a hope that we have that death is not the end. It is not death to die. That beautiful song that we often sing. I wonder, are we living in light of eternity? The author of Hebrews would have us live with that eschatological view in mind. Remembering not only did Jesus come to give His life to make a way to redeem and to reconcile mankind back to the Father, but He's also coming back as a conquering King to judge the earth, to judge sin, to right every wrong. This is the reality of the Son of God. This is His identity. This is who He is. This view would be further supported by looking back to verse number 3. You remember verse number 3? Take a peek back there with me just for one moment. He is a radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power after making purification for sins. What did He do? He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Son of God is enthroned at the right hand of the Father after making purification for sins. It's at this scene of the second coming that the angels will be charged to do what? What is their relationship with the Son of God? They must worship, acknowledging Him as that, the Son of God, the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What a glorious scene that will be. And we can look forward to that day with expectation, knowing as we sang this morning, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Our relationship with the Father through Christ Jesus is an adopted son or daughter, a joint heir. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And there will be a scene of the angels worshiping this Son. Based on this enthronement context, there is another Old Testament quotation that often is referred to here, likely from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse number 43. Let all God's angels worship Him. Rejoice with Him, Deuteronomy 32 says. O heavens, bow down to Him all gods. Some also point to Psalm 97, verse number 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast and worthless idols. Worship Him, all you gods. Lowercase g. It's interesting, the Septuagint 
translation, which is simply what the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament actually translates Psalm 97.7 in this way, worship Him all you angels. Again, which is most likely where this direct quotation comes from here in Hebrews chapter number 1, verse number 6. So the angels are commanded to worship the Son of God, namely because of His position. Do you remember the the prologue again of of verses 1-4? through He is the rightful heir. He is the one that has made purification of sins. He alone is the one who is seated at the right hand of the Father. He alone serves as our great high priest. And there is a distinction that is being made. There is a separation that is being established. And there is clarity that is being provided in these verses. The angels are inferior to the Son of God. We see, them, we see this most clearly in the reality that the angels are worshiping the Messiah. Verse number 7. Let's look at that as we continue to move on. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Verse number 7, the author makes his fourth Old Testament quotation, and it's an additional point concerning this contrast, again, between the Son of God and, and the angels. He points to probably the most elevated aspect of angels, and that is their role and function within the world of mankind. Verse number 7 again reads, of the angels, he says, he makes angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This quotation is coming from Psalm 104, verse number 4. And for sake of clarity, I'm seeking some help from a theologian and commentator because he, he said it just so well and I didn't want to try to repackage it in a way that uh, would maybe miss the heart of the text and um, take the, the care of the words that uh, O'Brien, theologian and commentator, notes that this particular Old Testament reference in the Hebrew original, the psalmist praises God who makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. O'Brien notes here, in other words, God's mastery over creation is such that he is able to make the wind and fire serve his sovereign purposes. Again, the Septuagint, again, that Greek translation of the the Hebrew Old Testament, it, it reverses the objects in this quotation of Psalm 104, verse number four that the text now speaks of the transitory nature of angels who receive their rank and task from God. He makes His angels winds and His ministers a flame of fire. We think back through the whole of Scripture. We can think of Old Testament and New Testament, different um, appearances of angels to mankind and the awe and the the fear, the trepidation that would come as a result of an angel revealing themselves on a mission from mankind, typically with a message to deliver. As we look at this world that we live in, and even in Christian circles, there seems to be somewhat of an unhealthy fascination with angels and spirits in this world that we live in. 
God has created them to serve in this world in a very unique and, and, and sometimes special ways, but they are never to be worshipped. Oftentimes our fascination with these side nuances of, of a passage or, or a text uh, we elevate the minor in a, at a text to become a major, and we demote the majors to become a minor. And the, what do we do? We miss the true meaning of a text. The point of Hebrews chapter number one is not for us to dive in some deep and unprofitable study of angels. We believe in angels. God uses angels. We have a section of angelology and in our doctrinal statement of faith. But, but friends, Jesus is better. <laughs> we, we, we shouldn't get so wrapped up and, and caught up in understanding things that maybe Scripture doesn't speak to. And elevating that to an unhealthy place where, again, it detracts away from our focus and our fellowship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a warning to that reality. As Jesus puts into perspective these incredible beings of, of angels. The Son of God is the only rightful heir of all things, including angels. And only the King of kings and the Lord of lords, only the Son of God because of His position and authority is worthy of receiving worship. So the Son of God is superior because of His relationship with the Son. Excuse me. Because of His relationship. And the Son of God is superior because of His position. And our third and final point this, this morning is that the Son of God is superior because of His nature. Because of His nature. Really, we're going to take these, this final section of verses eight all the way down through the end of the chapter in this final point as we establish that the Son of God is superior. Why? Because of His nature. Verse 8 says, But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of Your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now the Son of God stands once again in stark contrast to the angels as the author appeals to the nature of the Son of God. This is who Jesus is. So the fifth Old Testament quotation that we see here in Hebrews chapter number 1 in verse number 8 pulls from Psalm number 45. Psalm 45 verses 6 through 7. It says this, Your kingdom, or excuse me, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of Your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, Your God has anointed You with oil, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Psalm 45 is celebrating what a, a royal wedding. Psalm 45 is elevating, extolling, and ascribing great honor to the bridegroom. 
The nature and, and character of the eternal Davidic king of the Son of God is described here. He loves righteousness. He hates wickedness. He has been anointed and chosen by God the Father as the Messiah. No angel has a throne that is forever and eternal. No angel has a scepter of uprightness. No angel defines loves righteousness and hates wickedness the way the Son of God does. For it is out of the Son of God that we have morality, the understanding of right and wrong. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The next Old Testament quotation comes from Psalm 102, verses 25 through 27. And we see this in verses 10 through 12 of Hebrews chapter number 1. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same. And your years will have no end. Here the contrast points to two very specific aspects of who the Son of God is by way of His person and nature. Verse number 10, while alluding back to verse number 2 of chapter number 1, calls out that Jesus is the undeniable Creator of all things. Appeals to the Son of God as the Creator. Appealing to Jesus in terms of recognizing and acknowledging and affirming Jesus as Creator raises this sense of awareness in His readers' hearts and minds as it should for us as well. We're not dealing with, with any run-of-the-mill man. We're talking about the Creator of all things. Friends, do you remember that in your life when trouble and circumstance knocks on the door of your life, do you remember that Jesus is God? That He created all things? And certainly if God can speak this world into existence, can He not handle perfectly with His will and with His purposes and His time, the circumstances that we are dealing with? Can we not trust Him with our life? Can we not trust Him and His way? Even if it's in conflict with what we would want and what we would desire, can we not lay down our desires trusting a God that is Creator to place our faith in Him in that moment? Appealing to Jesus as Creator, it reminds us of the sovereignty of God. It reminds us of our place as what? Creation. And He as Creator. And just that simple exercise of acknowledging the Son of God, Jesus, as Creator, it gives an incredible amount of hope in the midst of the trial, the difficulty, the uncertainty, the pain, the loss. 
We can face tomorrow. Why? Because Jesus is on His throne as Creator. This is who we serve. This is who holds our hand. This is who tells us to cry to God the Father, Abba, to run to Him, that we can go boldly before the throne of grace. Andy, we're chomping at the bit, bit to sing this song, Boldly I Approach. We just, we got to get there. It's, it's, it's a song that we've got to sing, Boldly I Approach the Throne. What an incredible truth that we can anchor our heart and our minds on this morning as we consider that wonderful truth. So he's appealing to Jesus as creator. Closely associated, the author goes on in verses 11, 12, and 13 to do what? To appeal to one of the most important aspects of the nature of the Son of God, and that is his immutability. This is the doctrine that affirms what? That Jesus never changes. Verse number 11, they will perish but you remain, verse number 12, but you are the same and your years will never, will have no end. The immutability of God is this, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, He never changes. As we fast forward to chapter 13, verse number 8, Jesus Christ is the same when? Yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is the same God of the Old Testament and the New Testament. The way that Jesus spoke everything into existence, the way that God delivered the people of God, uh, the Israelites, from oppression and bondage, this is the same God that we love and that we serve who offers these same promises even to us in our day. Hebrews 13, verse number 8, is an incredibly beautiful verse, is it not? Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The nature of the Son of God is far superior to that of the angels, for His divinely immutable nature never changes. He is always the same, and His years will have no end. Verse number 13, do you remember the the book ends that we referenced from verse number 5 and verse number 13? And to which of the angels has he ever said? What did he say? Verse number 13, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool of your feet. Do you remember verse number four of Hebrews chapter number one? Or excuse me, verse number three. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. To which of the angels, the author said, has God ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Our next Old Testament quotation comes from Psalm chapter, or excuse me, Psalm 110, verse number one. Psalm 110, verse number one. And it goes really the whole connection of that theme goes down through verse number four. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
So we have some nuances, again, looking forward to that great high priest role. This messianic psalm of 110, it will continue to echo throughout the pages of Hebrews, and we will be confronted time and time again of who the Son of God really is. He is the rightful heir. He is the eternal creator. He is equally God. Jesus, the Son of God, is the atoning priest, the messianic king, and we've seen further explained today, he truly is supremely better even than all of the angels and all their glory and magnificence, their role and impact in this world. They, f- they fall in comparison to who Jesus truly is. Verse number 14 leaves no question to the matter. Finishes with the question, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? The author of Hebrews finishes with reminding us who exactly angels are. Angels are ministering spirits that are sent out. Sent out by whom? By God. Because they are subservient to God. For the sake of what? To serve. Not to be served. And not to be worshipped. This final question draws in down to one singular statement. Who the angels truly are. They are less than the Son of God. Because Jesus is better. First, because of a relationship. Second, because of a position. And third, because of his nature. They are messengers. They are ministers. But he alone, Jesus, the Son of God, has made purification of sin. He alone sits at the right hand of the Father. And he alone is worthy of our worship and our fellowship. Do you remember Acts chapter 4, verse number 12? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. I'm thankful that we had our call to worship from Philippians chapter number 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord. Friends, I wonder this morning, do you know this Son of God? I didn't say, do you know of Him or do you know about Him? But do you know Him? Are you in right relationship with this Son of God? Right now in this moment, maybe for the first time, you've seen Jesus for who He really is, the Son of God. Friends, church, Jesus offers a free gift of salvation by grace through faith. Our entire service this morning really has been about the gospel, about Jesus Christ as we work our way through this book of Hebrews, as we have an opportunity to remember Jesus right now and the the Lord's Supper. He offers, extends that free gift of salvation to you. Christian, I wonder this morning, are you living in light of the reality of who Jesus, the Son of God, really is? 
Are you living truly as if Jesus is superior because of His relationship with the Father that He is God? Are you remembering and living in light that Jesus is superior because of His position as rightful heir and enthroned with God the Father sitting at His right hand this very moment? And do you live your life moment by moment in the reality that Jesus is immutable? The Son of God is God. Why? Because He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And He desires, friends, to be in a saving relationship with mankind. superiority of the Son. Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for your love towards us. I pray now as we have an opportunity to further remember and reflect on the personal work of Jesus, I pray that our hearts would be stirred, that we would remember Jesus for who he truly is, not who we want him to be or what we desire him to be, that we would not put... um, our own expectations on Jesus, but we would simply answer his call to follow me. If any man come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Father, I pray as we have lingered in the gospel and as we've seen Jesus in comparison to the angels and we have come to an undeniable uh, reminder and conclusion that he simply is far superior and better than even all the greatness and glory and majesty of the angels. Jesus is better. We thank you for that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.